Welcome to another episode of Narrative for Social Justice. Today, we are focusing on narratives of Asian American and Asian Canadian representation. I'm your host, Angela Du, she, her. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. My current project examines how Victorian novelists imagined futures that look different from the 19th century present for female protagonists, what I am calling futures not yet here. My interests include the novel, feminist narrative theory, temporality, and character. And speaking of futures not yet here, I hope in future work to study late 19th century representations of Chinese women. I am thrilled to be joined today by Professor Joey Kim and Professor Jennifer Ho, and I will let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Joey S. Kim, she, her, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toledo. I research global Anglophone literature with a focus on 18th and 19th century poetics and aesthetics. Since the start of the COVID pandemic, I've also been writing public facing work on the rise in anti-Asian racism and hate crimes. I'm really happy to be here. Hi, and I'm Jennifer Ho. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, where I have an appointment as the director at the Center for Humanities and the Arts, and I'm also a professor in ethnic studies. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm coming to you from the traditional territories of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho nations. Uh, my field of study is generally Asian American studies, critical race studies, and I guess I should add that I'm currently the president of the Association for Asian American Studies. So for today, we have four questions to help guide our conversation. What are the terms, discourses, and concepts that we use to talk about Asian American and Asian Canadian identities, literatures, and cultures? How does your work engage with issues of Asian American representation? What are the common narratives that we hear, read, and see about Asian Americans and Asian Canadians? What can narrative study do for the representation of Asian Americans and Asian Canadians? especially regarding anti-Asian hate. And before we begin, I'd like to clarify that we're using the terms Asian American and Asian Canadian to signal where we speak from. I don't mean to reinforce exclusionary place-based and nationalist boundaries. Rather, we're acknowledging the limitations of our knowledges and experiences. Furthermore, I'd like to clarify that whereas I am a Chinese woman who has lived and studied in Canada, I am not a scholar of Asian Canadian literature or history. Given that our guests today have written and researched topics of Asian American identity, among other areas, I expect that our conversation will highlight their expertise with the understanding that our conversation is far from extensive or finished. Let me begin really quickly um, since I announced that I was the president of the Association for Asian American Studies and just say that I, I do recognize, especially as we're coming out of May, which in the US, and I'm not sure if this is also true in Canada, um, but May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So online, I've been seeing a lot of critique of terms like Asian American and Pacific Islander, and indeed whether we should even be talking about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders together. And when we talk about Asian Americans, who exactly are we talking about? And that's all really separate from even talking about Asian Canadians or Asian North Americans. So I, I should add that Jenny Wills um, and I, and Jenny's at the University of Winnipeg, are editing an 
Modern Language Association teaching approaches book called Teaching Approaches to Asian North American Literature. And we really wanted to consciously interrogate issues of Asian North American literature and to really intentionally not use Asian American or Asian Canadian, but really to to try and reinforce Asian North American, even while we understood that in doing so, we were prioritizing English and Anglo-Asian North American literature because we do not engage with Asian Mexican literature, which really has to do, I think, with two things, language and um, the fact that there really isn't the same kind of tradition in Mexico in the way that we, we talk about Asian Americans or Asian Canadians. And I guess that brings me to the first issue, which is that when we're talking about these categories, we're talking about race. And whenever we talk about race, what we're really talking about is racism, that racism as a system required categories of people optically into the boxes that we now understand to be race. And so race is always going to be flattening. In the case of Asian Americans, the term, and again, I'm really specifically focused on the U.S. here, the term was created by two graduate students who were activists in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they wanted a term that Asian descent activists located in the Bay Area could come together to work in coalition with a multi-ethnic, multi-racial group of activists fighting as part of this third world liberation front um, that was anti-Vietnam war, that was pro-Black civil rights. They were working with the Black Panthers. Um, that was also advocating for this nascent ethnic studies curriculum that then got taken up both at UC Berkeley and at San Francisco State, and then more specifically advocating for the field of Asian American studies before it even had that name. So the term Asian American, which I think most people think of as a census term, was actually a term born out of social justice and was a term that the people creating it always intended for it to have a very limited utility around activist organizing. And the reason I begin there is that I identify as an Asian American and I identify as an Asian American because of these social justice roots and because I know the history of this term. But I do recognize that the term Asian American is a term that includes over 30 nations, um, languages, customs, cultures. If we add Pacific Islander into the mix, that number increases to 50. And the reason I focus more on Asian American than Pacific Islanders is not to exclude Pacific Islanders, but to actually raise awareness to the fact that Pacific Island issues are rooted in settler colonialism, which is one reason I wanted to begin with a land acknowledgement, because I feel like if we're going to be talking about issues of race and racism, we have to acknowledge power structures, which means we have to acknowledge as Asian immigrants to North America that we are not part of the indigenous people here, but are on land that was taken and in many cases unseated. And even in in the cases where there were treaties, these treaties were not fairly written. Um, They were not really written with the goal of indigenous sovereignty in mind. Um, Certainly, at least that's the case that I know in the United States. So that's a very long-winded answer or explanation, Angela. And I'd love to hear what Joey's take on all of this is. But I, I think that for me, the term Asian American has utility because the racism 
that Asian descent and Pacific Island people are being subject to, especially during COVID-19, is so violent and acute that unfortunately that label and that term can be useful as a way to aggregate the experiences of racism and violence that Asian American and Pacific Islanders are experiencing because that racism does not ask about ethnicity or national origin. That racism just points to someone that has an Asian looking face. And by the way, one of the weirder things to come out, I I think of the anti-Asian racism that's happening now is that South Asian and West Asians are also being attacked and being accused of bringing COVID-19 into the country, which again, I think points to the illogic of racism that while East Asian people are bearing the brunt of this violence, this violence is being enacted against all Asian Americans, or rather all Asian Americans are subject to this violence and Pacific Islanders. So again, Pacific Islanders have also been subject to this same violence in the name of anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racism in the, in the COVID-19 era. Thank you, Jennifer. And you really crystallized so much for the overarching frameworks that I also want to participate in in this conversation and the ideas of political utility and this term Asian American or AAPI, they were created out of political utility, out of social justice, not out of some need to adequately account for us as a catch-all, right? And I was thinking about, I'm really into etymology and like the history of words and stuff. And it's like Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So they've been used in the U.S. since the 80s and 90s. And the Census Bureau used that term Asian Pacific American classification to group Asians, Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders all under one category. But then in 1997, the same bureau disaggregated these categories into Asian, then Pacific Islander, and how they are kind of being bandied about in different ways, depending on the situational context. And it really made me think about what you're saying, Jennifer, about this idea of like, the question is definitely racism. It's racial capitalist systems of this individualized thinking. And these terms are really based on these individual categories of political utility and acknowledging that we are on stolen land. Yeah, the brief history that you kind of summarized there of Asian American having its roots in social justice before it was kind of co-opted by sort of census classification really helps clarify how I feel about the terms that I use to describe myself and the terms that I hear other people use to describe um, themselves as Asian Canadians. I really only learned to identify myself as Asian or East Asian through census forms and uh, and similar types of forms. And it was the sense of belatedness or going back in time of learning about the social justice roots of, of terms like that. Even though I usually will only call myself Chinese and Canadian without a hyphen at the same time, I want to stand with other Asian Canadians without feeling the weird violent refraction of a census term and somehow kind of going back to the social justice roots. Do you see any of that happening now with the language? I feel like, as both of you have said, through kind of social media hashtags and whatnot, stop AAPI hate and the kind of visual resurgence of Asian American on Twitter and on Facebook and other places. Do you see this kind of returning to the social justice roots of this language? 
So Atlanta, I think more than Indianapolis, and so has really crystallized, I think, for a lot of people, the fact that the racism is real. Again, I am speaking more in a U.S. context, but I, I think that this is true around the globe, certainly in Anglophone countries. So I've been hearing on Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter. If anybody wants to follow me, they can go to at Dr. Jen Ho. You have to send me a follower request, though, because I'm getting some hate from some trolls. Uh, <laughs> More on that later. But I've been getting messages from people in Australia and the United Kingdom wanting to know where they can get more information about violence against Asians in those locations. Because in Australia and in the United Kingdom, and I, I think this is probably true in New Zealand and South Africa, and I, I even hazard to say Canada that the state of looking at Asian diasporic people is different and not as formalized than it is in the United States. And I, I think there's a lot of things going on. So part of that, it has to do with the ethnic studies movement that out of the 1960s, that ethnic studies became was institutionalized, right? So ethnic studies became institutionalized in the late 1960s, early 1970s in the United States, whereas that has not that has not followed the academic trajectory in Canada, the UK, or Australia. So people are only now, I think, particularly in the in the UK and Australia, coming to understand Asian diasporic people in those nations and actually creating academic lines and scholarship to do that kind of research. I would say Asian Canadian studies is further advanced, certainly than the United Kingdom or Australia, but is still maybe behind the United States. At least these, this is what I get from colleagues of mine, like Chris Lee, Kristen Kim, Jenny Wills, that it doesn't have the same sense of institutionalization. I think, again, largely because the history of Canada is so different than the United States. And I say that neither is a better nor worse, right? I think Sometimes those of us in the United States like to glamorize Canada, right? And, you know, like after Donald Trump was elected, we all wanted to move to Canada. But I, I think that all of these locations have race and racism and anti-Asian racism during COVID-19. And I think in the United States in particular, and I'm sorry, Angela, I just went like did a little circle in your question. But I do think that people are paying attention and news organizations are paying attention and they're asking scholars to be writing more pieces or more receptive to us writing pieces and using our expertise, whether that is scholarly expertise or bodily expertise or both, to talk about what it's like for us to be Asian descent people in these spaces facing anti-Asian racism. Yeah, and definitely there's this shift in terms of mainstream coverage of the issue. And I like how you hit upon that, Jennifer. It's really, to me, also this larger moment we're encased in, you know, Asian Americans were piggybacking off of Black Lives Matter and like this summer of justice for George Floyd. And it was really important for me, at least, to like situate myself within this history of this summer of protests that then made this groundswell of optical allyship in terms of brands and corporations suddenly, you know, like Blackout Tuesday, right? And it's like all these things, the optical allyship of a lot of these like capitalistic systems and governments and companies were also then adapting and evolving their racism for the moment, right? And with what happened with justice for George Floyd, and then also what's going on at the border with the global migrant crisis, and we're all living in a pandemic, the anti-Asian moment 
and this reckoning that has been there but has never been this mainstream in terms of coverage has really reached a place of being able to be at a platform and a centeredness that I guess in my lifetime I haven't really seen but I also too understand it as in many ways social media and optical allyship that um, there has been definitely change on the ground in terms of like legal or like hate crime reporting and stuff but in terms of the larger questions of situating I guess these like hashtags and these like I I call it like slacktivism right like when you're just kind of like hashtagging away it's definitely part of these larger like trending cultures of wanting to like virtue signal that I'm also trying to understand like just to take a break from sometimes and take a step away from the conversation in order to as you say Jennifer like maintain my own bodily expertise. I'm also thinking that for Canada this is a moment at the time of this podcast recording where Asian Canadians can also show real solidarity with anti-indigenous violence as well. Many communities are still reeling from the news of the Canloops residential school, you know, horrific deaths. Right now, I know that there are scholars in BC who are interested in recovering the histories of Indigenous Asian Canadian families. So it's just, it's a place to show that the history of Asian Canadians, of, of Asian Americans, that this is not separate from other groups. And because of that, because of how how intertwined it is with other histories, it has to be not just a brand, not just kind of an optical virtue signaling that it, that it is material and it has a material history and it needs to be approached as such. I was also just reading this afternoon, Tuck and Yang's Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, and it's just such a helpful and pithy reminder that these are real things. There are unmarked graves, just material traces that are not metaphors and that should resist metaphorization. I was wondering if both of you, now that you've both brought it up, have talked about your public scholarship in all of this. And Joey, you're saying that you've never seen this in your lifetime of scholars being asked to talk about their professional and personal expertise. If Maybe both of you, if you wanted to say a bit about what that has been like. I think mine's a specific case study because I researched my first book project is on British romanticism, right? (laughs) And so I really do not have, in terms of the research expertise for Asian American studies, something that could really give adequate resources and reading lists and all the things to the very people who are suddenly asking me in nationally to, because my embodiment tells them otherwise. And I think it's definitely been in both ways, an opportunity for me to check in with my future research projects. My first book project was on romanticism and like Orientalism. So I was always thinking through like this idea of Orientalist sites, subjects and settings. And I coined the term poetics of orientation in the 19th century to describe a poetic, specifically newly aware of cultural difference as a site of aesthetic contestation and ambiguity of representation. So then I'm kind of thinking through now this idea of lyric subjects and narrative approaches to the self and self-formation in my new book project, tentatively titled The Yellow 19th Century. And I'm looking at 19th century like newspapers and print culture, some of the earliest Anglo-Chinese newspapers in the U.S. And I'm, I'm trying to bridge a gap between historical and cultural analyses. So it really has helped me like pivot my interest to something that in the long run, I think is more sustainable in terms of my interest because of the resistance and the own psychological after effects and turmoil of constantly writing 
through a white dominant tradition in like 19th century British literature that I'm realizing in retrospect is just one part of my larger research goals. I'll piggyback on Joey. So I, I've been doing a lot of public facing work and that's largely for two reasons. One is I have the luxury of doing that as a full professor. I'm not, um, I don't actually have an academic book project on the horizon. I have two public facing books that I'd like to work on that I'm hoping that will a larger audience than an academic audience. So let me also just say, I of course have nothing against academic audiences and I hope academic audiences will read my books, but I get to, I think the thing that you get to do after you're a full professor for people who are on a tenure track path is to then think about like, what is the thing that you really want to be writing about? And for me, the thing I really want to be writing about requires a larger audience because my ultimate intellectual goal is to end racism, which is a completely naive goal to have. I mean, let me just say like, there's no way that if I were on MLA job market, I would have told anyone that my intellectual goal is to end racism. But I, I think if I'm really honest with myself, that's actually what all of my scholarship and the reason I did a PhD was all about. I, and maybe more specifically to the things that I'm interested in, I wanted to address the racism that Asian Americans face, not because I think Asian Americans face racism more than any other group in the United States, but only because I think that we often don't think about, or didn't, I would say, previous to Atlanta, we didn't think about racism that Asian Americans face. And that in fact, it was difficult to talk about anti-Asian racism because it starts to feel like you are competing against other races or you're trying like any conversation about anti-Asian racism, I would say previous to COVID-19, previous to the era that we're in, felt a little bit like having to justify itself, having to, to always make sure that, that people understood that I was not saying that anti-Asian racism was worse than or needed more attention than anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Latino, Latina, Latinx racism. Because unfortunately, and again, I'm really going to talk about a U.S. context, there is so much of a zero-sum game at play. There is so much of this idea that there is a one single pie, and that pie gets divvied up by percentage of people of that particular racial category. And there's so much of the model minority myth that has permeated our discourse and language about who Asian Americans are, making it seem as if Asian Americans are honorary white people. I am sure that everyone on this call and any Asian descent person listening to me may very well have had that experience in a workplace where somebody either outright says that to you, and that has outright been said to me in the workplace, or makes other kinds of comments that makes it clear that your concerns as an Asian descent person are really not as great as a quote-unquote real minority. And so... I think that all of this, as, as Joey mentioned, this is racial capitalism. This is divide and conquer tactics. This is things meant to separate us rather than recognizing that what the real enemy is, is white supremacy. And that's what I've been trying to be as clear as possible about now, post Atlanta and post Indianapolis and post, or rather I should say, in the midst of videos that we are seeing in which 
the assailant against an Asian person being attacked as black. And so this is creating this misperception in people's minds that the vast majority of anti-Asian racism is happening by black people against Asians. And that narrative has everything to do with the stereotypes and the anti-black racist sentiments that have culminated in nearly three centuries of anti-black racism, creating the impression in people's minds of black criminality and black brutality, especially when it comes to black men. And I'm of course, find every instant of violence against an Asian person or any person reprehensible. The fact that it's a black person harming an Asian person is reprehensible. I don't know that it's more reprehensible than anyone else doing it, but I, I do think it's reprehensible. I think it's abhorrent. I think that the reason we think, and by we, I mean the public, the general public think that it's majority black people has everything to do with the way that we continually criminalize black people in the US. And I would just say around the globe. I, I unfortunately think anti-black racism is probably something that exists globally. And so a lot of my public facing work has been to try and tease out all of these narratives and to really be clear that white supremacy is the root of so much of what we are seeing. It's really helpful to hear anti-Asian racism in American and Canadian contexts kind of broken down like that, because I feel like racism has become one of those terms where we feel like we all understand it, but it actually takes very specific forms depending on the community that it's uh, against. And I've come to think about racism as a collection of narratives rather than a single meta narrative because of these specifics that it takes. The model minority myth is one form of anti-Asian racism. Are there other kinds of particular racist narratives that you feel like your work is dealing with or that you hope to deal with? So just really quickly, I think that there's so much more solidarity that actually exists that we're not aware of. And if we're talking about narratives, then we need to make sure that we have access to a multiplicity of narratives. So while it is true that there have been historic tensions between certain Asians in America and certain Black people, and I talk about Los Angeles as one example, and Latasha Harlins and Mrs. Du, who shot Latasha Harlins in the back because she thought she was stealing. And what she had in her hands when she was shot in the back three times was a carton of orange juice. I want that to really sink in when, with people, right? And Mrs. Du never was not sentenced. She was found to be not guilty. And so she never served prison time. And her verdict came a month uh, before Rodney King. So all of that contributed to Rodney King's verdict of, of, you know, finding his assailants in the police force not guilty. And then, of course, having Los Angeles, parts of Los Angeles burn. And of course, the parts of Los Angeles that burned were parts of Los Angeles with Black and Brown and Asian people in it. And all of this is really complicated. So one could point to Los Angeles and say, oh, there's, you know, historic tensions between Korean and Black people. But that's really just a, a smaller part of a much longer, larger narrative of Black and Asian solidarity. And so for every instance that we can point to and say, yes, there's historic tensions that emerged in this particular community in this historic period, even that's not true. It wasn't as if every Korean American was anti-Black and every Black person in Los Angeles was anti-Korean. It's always more complicated than that. And that's one of the things that I hope, again, in my public facing work, I try and talk about that 
for every instance of that, we should also be talking about Yuri Kochiyama and her work with Malcolm X. And we should talk about Grace Lee Boggs and her work in Detroit and her marriage to Jimmy Boggs. And the fact that you have Black and Asian people who fall in love and create families, which we can see in Naomi Osaka and all of the really terrible things that Naomi Osaka is going through related to her mental health and her standing up for herself you know, against the professional elite tennis associations of the world. And I know I've just put a bunch of things all together, but I think that these are all things that are interconnected. And I think that the more we also talk about things that are more public facing, right, that that people understand who Naomi Osaka is and they understand the kind of platform that she has. And so the more we can contextualize everything that Naomi Osaka is going through is actually related to these larger narratives, of Black and Asian Americans, I think the better for a greater understanding of the complexities of race and racism and the better narratives we have to try and make sense and make meaning out of these issues. I was thinking a lot through what you said, Jennifer, about like the solidarities and like making sure that we also don't lose those moments because and they're shaded over by white supremacy and the lack of, you know, curriculum for Asian American histories for my research and public facing work, it's really about studying the patterns of representation devices, plot, discourse, in the stories we read and teach, but also what public facing work has done is helping me tell myself psychologically about my own self image in the eyes of the other. And it it really opens up the heterogeneity and the expansiveness of these identities. It helps to decenter whiteness and studies of race always as a response to whiteness, right? And it's definitely a project of storytelling, which I found in public facing work that I hope to continue on in academic and pedagogical research because one's intersectional experience and starting from that. Kathy Park Hong says it really well in Minor Feelings is really the start of kind of like decentering whiteness and recentering other no modes of solidarity and allyship. Yeah, I love Kathy Park Kong's in connection to something that both of you are saying. I remember she she was on a podcast recently where she was problematizing the term black and brown in the way that those terms are often um, paired together, but they're not they don't work because there are also Asians who are black and brown. And so what do you have their black, brown and Asian? And so it's it's kind of that that pairing of that terms uh, shows how complexion-based racism doesn't fall apart. It's an illogic, as, as um, Jennifer, I think you said earlier, that racism has illogics. I think that since we're talking about and naming some of these texts now, I'd love to hear about some of the texts that you read that have influenced you in any way. I mean, for me, everything begins in my life related to Asian American studies with Woman Warrior. The first time I read that book, I was 19 years old. It was maybe I was 18. Actually, I think I was 18 years old because it was my first year of, it was my first year of college at UC Santa Barbara. And it was the first quarter. So it would have been January of 1989. And it's assigned in my intro to Asian American studies class. And I'm taking the intro to Asian American studies class because it fit my schedule. I mean, seriously. And I, and it fit, you know, it fit my schedule and it, you know, checked off some kind of gen ed requirement. And I figured, oh, you know, I'm Asian. So I'll take this class. And, and that class changed my life. 
So in addition to reading Woman Warrior, I also read Michael Omi and Howard Winant's Racial Formation in the United States, the, the first edition. It's now in three editions. And that work really has intellectually impacted me because it made me think about race in a way that as an 18-year-old, I had not thought about race, right? So in a, as an 18-year-old who's a first-generation college student, you know, I read Woman Warrior and my mind was blown because it was the first time that I had read a work of literature written by an Asian person. So I had never been assigned any Asian American literature in my K through 12 life in California growing up in the 1970s and 80s. My public library was great, but they didn't have, to the best of my knowledge, any Asian American literature. Certainly no librarian had ever directed me to Asian American literature. And I, I don't fault librarians for that. I think that, you know, until Amy Tan publishes the Joy Luck Club, which also came out in 1989, publishers are actually not even having Asian American literature on their radar. So of course there's Asian American literature, but how accessible it is, especially to a working class you know, kid from the Bay Area in California. And, you know, I know I think we think of the Bay Area in California as being like Asian American Mecca, but it wasn't in the 1970s and 1980s. And so Women Warrior and um, Racial Formation in the United States, those two books, right? A, a memoir slash work of fiction, depending on how you want to think about it. Um, and then a work of sociology, critical race theory, you know, those two things hand in hand have guided all of the scholarship that I do to this current day. That's great that you can pinpoint it to that very moment. I love that. It's so interesting, like the directed stumbling many scholars do when they like find their research. And I guess for me, I read a lot and I read a lot of things that I just feel like reading. Currently, I'm reading a lot of Lisa Lowe, The Intimacies of Four Continents, which has really been helpful in thinking through a more global perspective of like Western liberalism and colonial divisions of humanity. In terms of creative writing, I just finished Viet Thanh Nguyen's The Committed. I love The Sympathizer and I had to read it and now I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it because he's not the easiest writer to understand. And Ocean Vong, um, Min Jin Lee Pachinko, finding a lot of just like contemporary Asian American novels that I can read as kind of pleasure reading or also as ways in which to teach these has been really fruitful. It's interesting because I don't mean to go off topic, but I'm actually teaching the first Asian American literature course at the University of Toledo next spring. And it comes out of this 50-year-old Asian studies program, you know, like a Cold War <laughs> formation, that suddenly we're they're thinking about what does an Asian American literature look like? They've had other types of, you know, global and post-colonial and Anglophone literatures. And it's really giving me an opportunity to lock into this moment of collectivism and this national consciousness. Joey, also as I'm not um, a romanticist, but as a Victorianist, I, I'd love to hear also a little bit about, you know, what maybe directed you to write that first project. What turned you to thinking about British Orientalism? I grew up, you know, in a very white dominant culture in Ohio, and I really did not understand that literature could be written by people who looked like me until much later, right? I remember being an English major and always a going toward reading and writing and falling in love. My first love was poetry. I'm also a creative writer. And with the romantic poets, I identified with the lyric subject and the I in ways that I could kind of like see myself in. 
And from that love of romantic poetry, I then happened upon post-colonial studies and Orientalism. I wrote Said, and, and I was like, oh crap, they are all racist, right? <laughs> they are all essentializing me. And that's what drew me into these quote unquote bad Anglophone Orientalist texts and recovering them and recentering these questions of the ambiguity of cultural representation and otherness and alterity and bias in like this moment of, in many ways, the birth of lyric poetry, the romantic moment, and this birth of writing as a creative expression of one's individual experience. So after Orientalism and thinking through like representations of this constant dialectic between self and other, it was just natural me to, me to though I went from like um, Orientalism to now thinking more through like restating Orientalism for this moment and much of what I see in Orientalism that's going on with the rise in anti-Asian racism. I have a question for jo Joey. Are you familiar with Craig Santos Paris? Because I know you're a poet and I just, I wanted to mm -hmm. put in a plug because I know... I know I just said I wasn't going to talk a lot about Pacific Islander, but I, I love Craig's poetry. And I think that he's a Chamorro poet. He's also a professor at the University of Hawaii. And um, I think that as much as we can do to try and highlight Pacific Islander voices and literature, we should. And so anyone listening to this, go and Google Craig Santos Perez. Yeah, his, his latest book, Habitat, which came out in 2020, was shortlisted by the Penn Book Awards and, and some other. It's been shortlisted for a lot of book awards, but it's really, it's really beautiful. It's both beautifully aesthetic, aesthetically, but also really weaves in environmental issues alongside Pacific Islander history. I just wanted to pick up on some of the things that I, I heard here and I'm reading Ocean Vuong currently. Um, I just finished Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown and, and I'm hoping to, I'm not hoping I will write the last chapter of my dissertation on Kazuo Shiguro. And, and what I'm so excited about for all these authors is that they are working with new forms and with Ocean Vuong calling that book a novel. I mean that that does something um, in terms of representation, and 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 I think some of the pushback and the criticism of um, why is the narration like this, or how is this a fantasy novel, or how is this a science fiction novel, is bound up in racisms and who gets to call what in different canons. So it's it's important to keep that kind of generic experimentation in mind in relation to discourses about race. But I I was thinking about some of the verbs that both of you were using when you were talking about your literary readings of, of stumbling into a course or falling in love with something. And I think that this is really important for, for racialized students to think about because something that I hear so much as a graduate student is that people fall out of love with reading and that they only read for their research and they can't stand to do it otherwise or that they cannot turn off this critical mind so that reading becomes something unpleasurable. And even though that kind of narrative is not immediately connected with narratives of race. I would like to connect them together because I think that reading is one of the ways that we come to have a consciousness about race. Beverly Daniel Tatum was someone who I read who really made me realize that alongside puberty and other types of growing up, that race development is also a type of growing up that can come belatedly for a lot of different subjects depending on where they grew up. And so I would really like all graduate programs to foster love for reading and having a lot of random courses so that we can not just stumble into Milton courses because they're the only ones that fit our schedule, but also other kinds of courses. I mean, we just have to overhaul graduate education. 
So let's just begin there, right? Like we need to overhaul graduate education, especially in the humanities and especially in English departments. So English departments are notoriously conservative. I mean, in terms of really slow to change. So why are we essentially hazing graduate students through comprehensive exams as one example, right? It's because we want to say that we want to ensure that students have a breadth of knowledge and that they will be able to go on to teach in these subject areas or to do research. Now, the, to do research part, I think, is a little bit of BS, I'll be honest with you, because obviously you are going to have to do a certain amount of research to be able to write a dissertation that your committee will pass. And if you have a responsible committee, they will help guide you and figure out what your intellectual questions are and what your intellectual passions are and to allow you to be inquisitive and to go on different, you know, cul-de-sacs. So we just need an overhaul of graduate education instead of the model of hazing, which is very much a model predicated on a Western colonial notion of knowledge and canon formation. And I think especially for those of us who work in areas of ethnic studies and critical race theory, the idea of a canon is something that we should always be wary of. So even, you know, I would tell you like in the critical race theory classes that I teach that, you know, I can't imagine not teaching Omi and Winant as one example, because they were so foundational to my own sense of understanding race and racial formation. However, I, I am perfectly willing to accept that other people may not have that same sense of how foundational that text is and may have real problems with it, or someone else is going to come around with a better kind of theory, in which case I will jettison and make room for the other kind of theory. I do not feel a sense that there is a canon that is set in stone that I have to make sure that I teach these texts in order for these for this field of study to be validated. Same thing with Woman Warrior, right? There are many Asian American studies classes I teach in which I never include Woman Warrior. I don't need to teach it or require other students that I guide to also read it and understand it in order for them to be legitimate Asian Americanists. And so the more that we can really think about what it is that we are doing in graduate education, because the hazing model of graduate education does a real disservice and it's just replicating existing power structures that we should always be interrogating. And I, I appreciate um, you focusing on this hazing model because definitely I was, as someone who graduated in 2018 and knowing like I have some distance, but not, not too much distance, the model of graduate education is also something that I persisted through during, you know, the scarcity mindset, the job market. And also it was a way in which that I also was able to write and creative write a lot of these poems during graduate school as kind of an outlet from the very punitive model of, I think, higher ed, right? I just wanted to add that while we're talking about hazing, that maybe another narrative that we should be aware of that is not disconnected with race in, in graduate school is also the respectability politics that certain fields like, like Victorian studies will be seen as respectable for those who are not often thought of as the bodies and the faces and the minds behind literary criticism. Definitely, totally. And speaking back to these cultures, these cultures of lead that don't really adequately represent many of us. And Body Facts is being released June 15th. It's my first book of poems. And I've been working on them for around 13 years, 
stemming from undergrad. And it really is about this longer sense of conversations with my ancestors and familial and national histories, the educational experience of my own, but more importantly, by venturing through Korean history, the feminine body, U.S. foreign policy and coming of age in Midwestern America, it also thinks through this idea of the body and the human body is more important than ever because we are living through a pandemic and also because of bodily harm and death and murder in the Atlanta shootings, the Indianapolis shootings. So I write from different perspectives of the body, body as human, body as land, such as the Korean Peninsula. I have a poem in there called Plunder that specifically speaks to the dispossession of Korean land and bodies during the Japanese occupation and the Korean War, which is technically still ongoing. And a lot of the poem, they interlace the speaker's childhood memories with things like American colonization, American plastic surgery, experimentation on Korean subjects, the fetishization of women's faces and misogyny, and bodies as objects to be modified and or plundered or assaulted in different ways. And it really made sense, I guess, to think through the idea of the body, especially because of my interest in also post-colonialism and land and sovereignty and the idea of being both a citizen, but also just an inhabitant of any space. Thanks so much, Joey. Thank you, Joey and Jennifer, for your insightful conversation today. Is there anything that either of you would like to plug So I have a book of poems, Body Facts, coming out on June 15th from Diode Editions. And you can find me on Twitter at Joey Kim, J-O-E-Y-K-I-M. And I think I already mentioned that people can follow me on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn for anyone who uses that platform. And I'm co-creating a series of classes on Coursera. So um, on anti-racism. So anti-racism one is already out. My co-collaborator, Sean O'Neill, has released Anti-Racism 2, and we're, we're going to be working on Anti-Racism 3. The classes are free. They're self-paced. You can take them over three weeks. You can take them over three months. If you want to do the paid content, you get a little certificate at the end when you do the homework. Yeah, I will double plug that. I really recommend those courses. I am uh, Ange underscore Y underscore do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the N4SJ podcast. Feel free to reach us at our email address, narrative the number four, sj at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at narrative the number four sj. Feel free to join our Facebook group called Narrative for Social Justice.